Hello and welcome. My name is Jo Frost and I'm here with my co-host Peter Linus and this is Being Human. So welcome back. It's good to be back. So this is the Being Human podcast. We are going to wrestle with what it means to be human in this current cultural context. Uh, We finally have a new president in the White House. Uh, Brexit chaos continues here in the UK. Pandemics, lockdown, vaccination rollout. It is a fascinating but incredibly challenging time to be a human. Yes, and just as we were recording this, Lord Sumption, who we have referred to before in this podcast, um, got into trouble talking about the value of different lives when it came to vaccinations. I don't accept all lives are of equal value, he said. Um, older people have less time left, and that's a classic example, we would say, of the usefulness point we made right back in the Whose Lives Matter episode, just to show we're right on it and topical as always. <laughs> um, and we do, we do want to press in again right at that intersection of these cultural stories that are playing around us right now, uh, the smaller stories of our own lives, and then how do those intersect with the good, the true, and the beautiful story that we read in the Bible? So we've been working our way through the God story. Uh, In the last episode, we looked at justice and the crazy crackpots, as I like to call them. Or the biblical prophets, as I like to call them. Oh, well, fair enough. But they were a little extreme. I mean, I I don't know that I would have been that keen to hang out with Ezekiel when he was going through his poo phase. Um, But what I mean to say is that prophets were the social warrior, um, the social justice warriors even uh, of their day. They upset pretty much everybody with everything that they had to say, but they called out injustice in the world around them. They were passionate about the vulnerable quartet, as we've described in past, and they have a much fuller and richer understanding of justice than many do today. Yeah, we were picking that up last time. And many, when you hear the word justice, think maybe of something like Lady Justice. Maybe that's just me because I used to be a lawyer and she's on all the courts. Uh, The Greco-Roman goddess, she's blindfolded. She's holding the balanced set of scales. And this idea, justice is blind. It shows no partiality and it's concerned with fairness and equality. And those are, of course, really important themes, good ideas. But the biblical view of justice, as we were exploring, is much richer and much deeper and much bigger. And that was all in the last episode. So if you missed that, do check it out, please. So this time we are going to look at the theme of exile. We are in the book of Daniel, another crackpot crazy prophet. Um, But he and his friends have been carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. They are learning a new language. They they have to um, adopt a new culture. They're given new names, new food. They are being shaped and discipled by the court and by the kingdom around them. So in this episode, we want to look at some of the shifts in our culture. We may not have been carried off into exile, but culture is moving so fast that it can feel like we're in exile even when we're standing still. Totally. And so for many Christians, there there has been this shift from being part of the moral majority as it was seen to being seen as part of the immoral minority. Language and culture is shifting. And so, for example, it has become, it's come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm pretty much unacceptable to deny or to question that kind of statement. The social imaginary or what some people call the, the plausibility structure has changed. So here's how I might describe it. I grew up in a house of boys. I went to an all boys school. This explains a lot. And the presumption was, bear with me, that the toilet seat was always left up. 
I now live in a household full of females, <laughs> my wife and two daughters, and the presumption is that the toilet seat is always left down. Correct. A trivial, a trivial example of essentially how what is normal, what is acceptable, the plausibility structure in my world has changed radically. <laughs> I can't believe we've got two references to toilets in, in less than two minutes. This is going well. So in this episode, we are going to be looking at topics such as Peter's sexuality, uh, conversion therapy and trans. This is all your favourite topics in one foul swoop. It's true. That's them hooked now wondering what I'm going to say about my sexuality. <laughs> we had to get them in somehow. <laughs> So you have teed us up for some pretty interesting conversations. Where do you want us to start? Okay, so we've done some work at Evangelical Alliance on helping people begin to understand and navigate conversations around, for example, trans. We've, in fact, both spoken on that topic uh, back when we used to go to events and speak to actual real-life people. I miss those days. I mean, yeah, it was certainly a challenge, but it, it is a really popular conversation to topic to speak on because... This is affecting people's lives left, right and centre. It's very real. It's in every school in the UK. It's all over TV. It's in headlines every week. It's everywhere. Yeah, right. So a guy called Carl Truman has written an excellent book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, and a lot of it's really centred around this question. How did it become okay, even meaningful to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? And Truman, it talks about his grandfather. He said he was a sheet metal worker. I think it was from Northern England. And he'd have just looked at you and simply not understood the statement. It wasn't plausible for him. Yeah, because there have been these series of shifts in Western society from teachers that we learn from, from the stories that we tell, from to people that we listen to that has led to these shifts in the way people understand the world around us and how we should behave within it. These shifts have led it to be possible within two generations for some statement that was once inconceivable to now be taken as completely reasonable to say, I've been born in the wrong body. Yeah. And what, so what we want to do is look at some of those steps. So the first one is you, you throw off God, this notion that we live in a secular age, that there's no external, there's no supernatural, there's no divine force or forces at work. And that radically changes how modern men and women conceive of their human identity, their freedom, their flourishing. And that is a lot about what we've been talking about right through the, the whole narrative of this podcast. People talk about the loss of the sacred order. And by that, we're simply saying, look, this is about uh, deciding what's right and wrong. So the sacred order suggests that there was something sacred, something divine, God, an external authority that helped us order our lives. But if there is no external being, if we've got rid of God to set the rules, then our ethics is really based on personal opinion. It's really based on nothing more than our emotions. What brings me happiness? What feels good? If it feels good, you do it. Morality then becomes about personal preferences and it becomes really a function of our feelings. And that's a really strange and interesting place to be. We find our meaning by giving expression, by kind of living out of our own feelings and desires, and this leads to a culture of authenticity. You've heard that kind of expression that, we, that this is all about being authentic, being true to who we feel we are, 
rather than in any way being conformed by society out there or by previous generations in our family or by religion, frankly, by anything external. Yeah, so Charles Taylor calls this the journey, the journey from the age of authority to the age of authenticity, where we move from objective or at least external power to the thoughts and feelings of a person being the driving force in one's life. And we see this all around us. Institutions like schools, they shouldn't shape or mould a person. Instead, they exist to help people express who they are. They provide a platform for a person to display themselves before a wider world. And we hear it all the time too. We hear it in cliches like, you do you, be true to yourself, whatever makes you happy. And this is a really fundamental shift. So you don't go to university or to church to be exposed to ideas that challenge our deepest beliefs and commitments, but to be affirmed, to be reassured in who we feel we are. And that which challenges my psychological beliefs about myself and so disturbs any, in any way my inner sense of, of well-being, that is by definition then something that's harmful to me and there's so something that I want to reject and actually prevent somebody from doing to me. And so we track this journey then, don't we, where to be human is to embody and to live out my thoughts and feelings. The best thoughts and feelings are happy ones. That's what we're aiming for. That's a purpose in life. And pleasure is the highest form of happiness. And sex is the highest form of pleasure. Therefore, to be human is to fulfill our sexual uh, desires. Thanks, Sigmund Freud, for that. Because what he did was he sexualized the self and main, and it meant that our sexual desires are ultimately decisive for who we are. Everything now is about sex. In a post-Freudian worldview, sexual identity and sexual behavior cannot be se separated from the self-identity of who we are. I mean... We've said it before when we've talked about the TV show Friends. The whole show is basically about having sex. Who's having sex with who? What the consequences are of not having sex with the right person, having sex with the wrong person. You can even just take Joey, for example. His whole identity is built around how many women he gets to have sex with. Sexual behaviour is linked to sexual identity, which is the core of the self. Yes, and we date ourselves by talking about Friends, but actually Friends is back, the kids are watching it, and it's got into trouble more recently because it was actually pretty dismissive about those who were trans and those who were gay. Uh, I think it was Chandler's dad who changed uh, her from being Chandler's dad to Helena Helena Handbasket. I think it was Helena Handbasket. Um, there's a pun there, I think, somewhere in her name. Anyway, so, but 25 years ago, it was considered okay to make a joke about those who didn't conform but now to object to homosexual practice is to object to homosexual identity. Uh, and those two things have become linked. And the question then of identity is seen in the modern world. If you question that, you're questioning somebody's dignity, not something that you can joke about or agree to differ on. And so that's really the shift that we want to highlight that's gone on the last sort of 20 years. It's now plausible to talk about being trapped in the wrong body and implausible to oppose gay marriage or to say gay sex is a sin as we discussed last series about Tim Farron in, in, in season one. And this isn't just a religious thing. Uh, Nikki Morgan, a former education secretary, in 2013, she was opposed to gay marriage. By 2014, she had decided that she was for it. And by 2015, she saw opposition to gay marriage as a possible evidence for extremism. It's 
whiplash. It's, it's moving so fast. Exactly. You get whiplash. You're like, whoa, how did that cultural change happen so fast over three years, those movements? And so uh, the sense of self uh, then dominates everything and everything around should foster my sense of self. It should support my well-being. It should help me to be authentic, to be true to myself. And that is critical in limiting the role then of institutions that previously would have shaped us and molded us and challenged us. And so church no longer does that shaping and molding. That's the, the theory. It doesn't shape us and disciple us in the way it should. It's supposed to just reinforce how we already feel about ourselves. And what we've seen most recently then is that this move isn't only that institutions don't shape us, but that they shouldn't. They can't be trusted or that they will shape us somehow badly or wrongly or immorally. We have seen this come through in stories like the shameful and tragic stories of abuse and bad leadership. But we've also seen it more insidiously um, that what might have previously been considered standard shaping around practices for tithes or marriage or sexual behaviour have now in themselves been deemed abusive. And one specific space that we've seen this creeping in is around the issue of conversion therapy. You say that term and most people go, it's abhorrent, it's awful, ban it, it's terrible. And at one end of conversion therapy conversation, which includes electric shock therapy or like enforced rape or some scandalous and horrific practices, absolutely right. If it isn't illegal, why isn't it? I mean, these are harmful practices, but the other end of the conversation where advocates are seeking a ban, they, there are also definitions of conversion therapy which seek to criminalise those who want to persuade somebody to change their behaviour. So as by, de by their definition, to prevent them from conforming to a heteronormative lifestyle. And so language becomes really important in this. There is some really unhelpful language out there about gay cure therapies. And the church has to acknowledge it hasn't always done a good job in discipling those who are same-sex attracted. It's got some stuff wrong. But the danger now is that a church leader will not be able to teach uh, that the Bible teaches that sex should be confined to the marriage union between a man and a woman to say to someone not to commit adultery uh, or to pray with somebody who's struggling with issues of lust. At its most basic level, some are campaigning to prevent the church or anyone being able to tell someone else that what they are doing is wrong and that they in any way need to change. And this is basically an attack, if you like, all the way through to original sin, the denial on any need to converge. And it goes back to this idea that I decide myself what's right and wrong and no external institution or body or person gets to in any way influence what I do. Because to suggest that an action is wrong or sinful or that someone needs to change their way of behaviour has become offensive. But more than that, it's hurtful, it's harmful, it's even an act of abuse or violence. So the defence of free speech or freedom of religion or academic free freedom, these won't hold because this has now become a, a safety or a safeguarding issue that anything that would threaten someone's self-chosen sense of, of identity, of self-conception, of sexual freedom, or even just what I need for my own mental health, anything that inflicts on that isn't just improper, it's criminal. Now, we're aware we've gone down a particular kind of, some will say a rabbit hole, but it's a very specific area of work that we're involved in. And we, we need to be cautious about that and we're, we're alert to that. But we do think that's where the story can lead to. And we're seeing that in our world. And we're, we're pretty careful about sounding the alarm 
playing the kind of woe is me card per persecuted Christians. People ask us to come and chat on themes like that. And we, we're like, no, that's not where we're, the space that we're in. We don't want to overreact. We don't want to exaggerate. But we also have to recognize where the cultural conversation is going. That's right at the heart of this project. If the world now becomes all about me and my happiness, and no one has the right to tell me or anyone else that what they are doing is wrong. And if religious freedom isn't going to help you, because when it comes to sexuality or gender, this is a harm issue and that trumps religious freedom. And that's why some then in the LGBT campaigners will not be content with anything less than a transformation of the church into a body that fully affirms lesbian and gay relationships with all forms of transgender activity. So when we in the past have talked about the size of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, um, transforming all of human life to the half gospel of you've sinned, screwed up and Jesus has forgiven you to the quarter gospel of God loves you and accepts you as you are. This is where this, this conversation has led us to. It has led us to this complete acceptance of anything and even anything that is deemed upon you to change is now immoral. But we want to advocate for the fullness of the gospel, that life is found in relationship with God and submitting our lives to his rule and reign. And that is why we are talking about this today. So we've just covered off some fairly difficult topics and identified some of the thinking behind them. Uh, namely, if we throw off God or, or any external authority, we have to turn inward. We determine our own ethics and morality. Ultimately, we become self-determined beings. And in so doing that, our behavior feeds and affirms our identity. It becomes the manifestation of who we are, particularly, again, thanks to Freud, in the area of sexual identity. And what this means is that if you turn around and believe that my sexual practices are wrong, you're hurting and harming me because you're damaging my self-determination. You're damaging the ability that I have to define and identify myself. And you are no longer entitled to be able to do that because that ultimately is wrong. And that's where we want to build the link into Daniel and to exile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're supposed to be talking about today. <laughs> exactly. That's what we're trying to get, get back to the text here. So, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar has captured Jerusalem. He's carried off some of the Israelites into exile. And uh, when Daniel's taken into captive, one of the first things that happened is that Daniel and his friends are enrolled basically in a three-year degree program, a master's program, an apprenticeship about Babylonian language and Babylonian culture. They're given new names and they're offered different food. And what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he's, he's discipling them into a new identity. He knew that language and culture was key to shaping them into that. And, and this is the key. We may not have been carried off into a new country, but culture is changing and it is shaping us. It's the old fish in water story. There was two young fish swimming along, having a whale of a time. <laughs> and they met an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, but then eventually one of them looks to the other and goes, what's water? Culture is the water that we swim in, but it is hard to recognize it when you're in the midst of it. So it might have taken me a minute, but I did spot the dad joke and I just referenced people back to that for a moment now. <laughs> Your wheel of a time. <laughs> I 
Oh, that was quite good. I was slow. Anyway, yeah, so uh, culture is the water we swim in. It's about shaping our identity. It's the news that we read. It's the education we receive, and which is hugely influenced by the thinking that we've been talking about earlier. You can kind of track some of the key thinkers down into our education system. And so Daniel knows his life is being shaped by a different story to the pervasive story that's surrounding him. Daniel carries an alternative story, the God story, in his heart. And so he resolves, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Daniel 1.8, he resolves not to defile himself with the king's food and wine. And his friends refuse later on in the, uh, the book to bow down to the 90 foot high statue. Daniel later on again continues to pray three times a day. He is facing towards Jerusalem. He is probably doing it at the set temple prayer times, which is why he gets caught so easily. What I love about Daniel's story is the inclusion of his friends. It's so important. Daniel didn't try and do his crazy diet of veg and water on his own. He asked that he and his friends could do it. We all need pioneers like Daniel, people to stand the gap and speak out the crazy crackpot prophets. But none of us can do these things alone. We are a relational people and we need to be supported. We have been made in the, in the image of a relational God. We are designed for relationships with him, with each other and the world we created. he created. That's why we're finding this season so incredibly challenging. Absolutely. And so he had these great uh, relationships with his mates. Shake the bed, make the bed and into bed you go. Um, the old Sunday school language for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Is that just me? That's how we learned them. But Daniel also built relationships with his captors. <laughs> I think I might have lost Joe now. God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion with the palace master Ashpenaz. So Daniel didn't just march in and say, I'm not eating your royal food. He negotiated with the local guard and he suggested this 10-day test, trusting God to do the rest. And so our engagement with culture needs to be this missional, winsome way of trying to draw others towards God, to bring him into relationship with Jesus. And that's why the story of Daniel is so fascinating for this moment that we're living in. Daniel doesn't run off and hide. He can't. He's been dragged into Babylon. He is where he is. He has to wrestle with the culture that's all around him. And, and actually, Daniel is an incredibly senior figure. He's basically a special advisor to the government in so many ways and to so many political leaders over a 70-year period. And what I find fascinating about Daniel is he, he brings together two things, as well as an, uh, he brings a, an understanding of culture and of language, but he also brings in the supernatural. The real game changer is that Daniel, unlike everyone else around him, can interpret dreams and visions. So he has access to these political and cultural spaces and he brings his faith right into the middle of it. Yeah. Totally. I know people who are really good at the culture and language piece. They can navigate what's going on in this moment, but they're reluctant to say too much about their faith and really push in. And then I know those who are great at the supernatural. Um, they're super prophetic, but they don't really get the same kind of access often to engage the culture. And Daniel is this model of how we need to do both those things well. The more godless the culture, the more the need for the spirit and the supernatural. And that's what Daniel brings to the table. 
And and Daniel is this precursor to Jesus who does the same thing. He uses the language and the culture um, that's in the world around him. And he brings that into the heart of conversations. He tells stories about everyday life, about the marketplace. But he also uses signs and wonders to stop people in their tracks, to signal and signpost who he is and the coming of the kingdom. John's gospel is littered with talk about these seven signs and the signs that Jesus is who he says he is and is bringing about the kingdom like he promised. It's all about the revelation of his glory. Absolutely. And Jesus is preaching right in the heart of this and in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, this political manifesto. The phrase Jesus is Lord is a challenge to the political system where Caesar was Lord. Jesus didn't come to promote some privatized faith where we kind of have our quiet time each day and then try to live quietly in the corner, hoping no one will notice us. He came to announce a kingdom led by a king. Mark Sayers talks about people wanting the kingdom without the king. Yeah, and on this, I think Mark is just spot on. Deep within every person is a longing for righteousness for justice. We want things in the world, or at least in our little corner of it, to be at peace. We want to eradicate human trafficking, racism, hunger, homelessness, abuse. We long for a world where everyone is valued as an image bearer of God and no one is marginalised. But we also want the right to be able to choose what is right and wrong for ourselves. We don't want somebody else imposing and forcing their views on us. We want to be commander in chief of our world and of our kingdom. We want the authority to rule and judge for ourselves. We want the kingdom, but we want to be our own king. If the culture around us has moved so fast that we are now finding ourselves in exile, how then should we live? Well, for me, the the biggest take home from the Daniel story is that when he was confronted with the culture around him, he wasn't so susceptible to it because he knew his own story. The God story was within him. We have to ground ourselves in our story. We have to know the God story. We have to carry Jesus into the world in which we inhabit. The Bible forms, shapes and disciples us. Culture will try to, but instead give the God story the permission and the space to do this instead. Similarly, we do. We need to be aware like of our culture around us. We have to recognise how we got here and how that shapes our identity. Like we live in a secular age, an age in which to believe in something external, to believe in God is much more contested, an age that doesn't think we need God. And so it just rejects any kind of form of external authority. And so the individual rules. It's all about me. I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. And anything that threatens me and threatens my choices is a problem. It's not the role of schools or churches or anybody else to form me. What they need to do is allow me to perform. I love that distinction, the difference between formation and performance. 
add into that then anything around the digital distraction that, again, we spent quite a lot of time talking about over in season one. And you have a great understanding of the cultural climate change that we're in, where secularism, individualism, deconstructionism and distraction all combine to shape our culture and therefore shape our identity. This is the water that we swim in so often without even realizing it. And I, I mean, it's taken us years to realize what this looks like and how this works. And, and we still feel like we're just scratching the surface. Mm. So how do we engage? Well, I think um, we have seen how not to engage sometimes in terms of culture, <laughs> in terms of the culture wars of the US. Um, and so I think we can identify some things that actually that don't work. And I don't mean to be negative immediately, but I think it's important to say, okay, so the fight idea that everything's a fight, that culture wars is the way to go. I think it's uh, Andy Crouch again is useful at saying, fight can be a kind of gesture at times, something we do temporarily, but if that's our permanent posture, that's a real problem. There are moments we need to push back, but if we're constantly in a fight, no, that's not a good way to go. The second one is flight. So we kind of take flight. It's a bit like the Benedict Option, Rod Dreher's book. Um, and I think the concern there is whether whether it's exactly what Rod was saying is it's the idea that it's we, we just get away. We hide, we hunker down, we sort of take, take our small gang with us and get out of here. But it's simply not missional enough. It's not what the Bible commands us to do. So I don't think taking flight works. And the final one is just to fold to join the crowd, to blend in. It could be apathy, just simply, I don't care. Or it could be assimilation where we're just trying to blend in. We just take some money from the government here. We agree to a policy over here. We start to move on this and shift. And before we know it, we kind of conceded all the ground. So I think fight, flight, and fold don't work well in this moment. Okay. So that's what not to do. <laughs> Any positives? <laughs> Anything that we should do in that? Well, as, as yes, the preacher in me has three more Fs. Um, but I think there's a few things we can think about. There is a faithfulness piece. Um, so uh, faithfulness to the gospel, to the biblical story, uh, to the church. This is this is the long, hard work of formation. So we've talked about that forming, performing piece. Like uh, discipleship is forming and shaping people. We are always being formed. That is the reality of the culture that we live in. We are always being shaped by a narrative, by a story, by things around us. The question we have to ask ourselves is who or what is shaping me in this season? So we've got that faithfulness. We are commanded towards fruitfulness. And um, that reminds us of our missional calling, like we are good news people. Um, the Benedict option for me isn't an option because we're supposed to be a part of missional communities. We are supposed to be being fruitful, pointing other people towards Jesus, bringing them into our communities and bringing them to relationship with him. And the final bit of that is flourishing. And Christians aren't always associated with that. We want to see well-being. We want to see people thrive. We want to see the shalom of those around us. That's what the exiles were to do. Jeremiah was written to those in exile. You know, the false prophets were saying, hey, you're only here a year or two. It's fine. Just batten down and then we'll get back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, no, guys, we're here for 70 years. We're here for the long haul. Marry and have kids. Plant your vineyards. Build your houses. Like cultivate and create. See the flourishing of this place around you. I think that's so important, isn't it? And you've mentioned him already, but I do love Andy Crouch on culture. Um, he uses C's rather than F's. Um, so instead of condemning, critiquing, copying or consuming culture, he talks about this creativity, this cultivating and creating within it. He uses this illustration of um, making uh, chili for his family every Tuesday night and every Tuesday night, the uh, culture of his family 
family is to complain because they don't like it. It's cut wrong. It's um, not how they'd want it. They critique it. And he wishes they would just shut up and eat it. None of this happens in my house, by the way. Um, but actually what he realized was the only way to change the culture of a Tuesday night dinner was to then invite his kids to to create to cultivate. So one Tuesday night, he comes home and has this most amazing Thai green curry. Um, and, and the whole system's changed. And that's so much of what we can do as the church to cultivate what's already there, to co-create, to imagine and to bring into being as image bearers of God, the culture that we are, are immersed in to change culture by creating something new. It's so good, isn't it? God's mission is to unite everything in all of creation under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the kingdom coming. And the gospel is the announcement of this. The church is the bearer of that image. We're the first fruits. We're the ambassadors of the gospel of the kingdom. We are the voices and the temptations in our culture that seek to persuade us. Sorry, there, there are these voices. There are these temptations that are always seeking to persuade us to abandon our identity in Christ, to live out of our old nature, to leave the identity of the foreign embassy of the local church and to go native in the host culture and the surrounding society. And it's so tempting, but we have been sent with authority and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We are part of these ambassadorial communities with this missional mandate. Being in exile is the basis for mission. It's not an obstacle to it. And that ambassador language is really good. Like we've got to know the language. You've got to know the culture around us within which we are working, but we remain distinct from it. We don't go native. And then like Daniel and his friends, we're trying to, we're shaped by this different story and this different identity. And that's what enables us to be ambassadors. So we need to know the story that is shaping our identity, but we also need to build relationships. Uh, we need some mates who can support us um, and journey with us. We need missional friendships, um, uh, people that we connect with to transform the culture that we're embedded in. And ultimately, we need a public voice to speak into the public square, to um, to influence power and authority and, and government, um, just like Daniel did, even with the king. And then ultimately to remember that we don't go in these spaces alone. We take the Holy Spirit with us. He is already there and he has blessed us with every gift we could possibly need in this endeavor. Yeah, so everything we're doing is missional at this moment. So I want to end with this uh, quote from uh, Leslie Newbegin, a great missionary and a great missional thinker. And he says this, when the church affirms the gospel as public truth, it is challenging the whole of society to wake out of the nightmare of subjectivism and relativism, to escape from the captivity of the self turned in upon itself, and to accept the calling which is addressed to every human being to seek, acknowledge, and proclaim the truth. For we are that part of God's creation, which he has equipped with the power to know the truth and to speak the praise of the whole creation in response to the truthfulness of the Creator. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, do subscribe uh, to the Being Human podcast available on any podcast platform of choice. Uh, review, rate and share. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless. Bye.